All right, welcome back to Bush School Uncorked. I'm your host, one of your hosts, Justin Bullock. Season two. Season two. Of Bush School Uncorked. I'm Gregory Gauze. Greg's back as well, which I'm super excited about. I missed you over the summer. And I missed uh, recording episodes of Uncorked over the summer. Well, we couldn't do it because you were in Taiwan the whole summer. Yeah, it's yep. hard to do. It's a hard, it's a hard <laughs> podcast to do. But welcome so, back. Yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, it's exciting to get the semester going back. I miss the... I miss the building and I miss the students and mm-hmm. all of you. So I wanted to start uh, episode one with just a few pieces of information for this season. Um, the first is the schedule. Uh, last year was we were throwing this together uh, kind of as we were going, getting ready and mm-hmm. uh, figuring out the plan we were going to use. This year we've gotten organized and have some dates for you to begin with. So I'm just going to run the live recording dates by you so you can add them to your calendar if you'd like to join us. Our second episode will be on Tuesday, September 24th at 6 p.m. also at Downtown Uncorked. We'll have Dr. John Schuschler and Dr. Kim Field talking about U.S. grand strategy in the Trump era. And then in October, we have two episodes. One will be on October 22nd at 6 p.m. We'll be looking at the third sector and improving outcomes for society. That'll be with Dr. Will Brown and Dr. LSU. And then episode four will be on October 29th, also at Downtown Uncorked. Uh, the title for that episode is Local Governments as Engines of Policy Innovation. Dr. Ann Bowman and Dr. Robert Greer will be with us for that episode. Only two left. In November, November 12th, uh, also at 6 p.m., we'll have Dr. Rico Huang and Dr. Muhammad Tabar to talk about democracy, destabilization, and conflict. And then we will wind down uh, this season on December 3rd at 6 p.m. as well, also at Downtown Uncorked. And we'll be looking at, among a few other things, the important relationships among water, energy, and food with Dr. Kent Courtney, who's actually in the audience today. Hi, Dr. So um, that's kind of our schedule. The other thing that I wanted to let you know, you may have been made aware of us through the Bush School or our Facebook page. Uh, you can look at us for look for us at Bush School Uncorked on Facebook. We now also have a Twitter handle and an Instagram handle. Twitter is at Bush Uncorked. Instagram or Insta is at Bush School Uncorked. Got some of the terms down. I'm not mm-hmm. an old timer yet. And then we have an email where you can reach out to us too at bushschooluncorked at gmail.com. And this season too, we're actively um, suggesting that you send us questions. If you have questions for uh, our guests, we'll be posting about which guests will be with us, although I did just announce them. You can put comments on those posts, on those tweets. Mm-hmm. You can send us direct messages or email us if you have certain questions you'd like us to ask. Craig, I'm not forgetting anything. That was a lot. That was an awful lot. Yeah. But uh, go to the website, uh, go to the Facebook page, all the information's there, and uh, send us your questions. You did that much shorter than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, sticking with our format from last season, uh, we have a couple of guests that we're really excited to have with us today. We're going to spend about the first 20 or 25 minutes of the podcast talking about a specific policy area with our guests. We'll take a short break and then we'll have a more broad uh, discussion panel. So uh, with us today we have uh, Dr. Deborah Kerr and Dr. Lori Taylor and rather than botching introductions for them I'm going to let them describe themselves as they see fit today. So, uh, Dr. Kerr is signaling towards Dr. Taylor that she's volunteered. <laughs> I have been maybe. voluntold to go, <laughs> first. to go first. She's my so. boss. Yeah, she's the boss, so she <laughs> yeah, should go I, first. Right. So, hi, I'm, I'm Lori Taylor. I'm the head of the Public Service Administration Department. 
uh, at the Bush School, which means I'm not only Deborah's boss, I'm also Justin's boss. Woohoo! Ah, uh, yeah, poor Lori. <laughs> and I have been at the Bush School for uh, uh, since 2003. My areas of expertise are I'm an economist who's interested in state and local public finance, particularly education finance questions. So I have been really interested. Uh, since I arrived at the Bush School in questions of educational efficiency and how do we get more bang for the buck in the public school system without throwing the whole system under the rails. Excellent. All that's going to come relevant in one of our topics today, maybe our main topic. Maybe. 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 Dr. Kerr. Maybe, maybe. I'm Deborah Kerr. I have been at the Bush School for 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to that, I worked uh, for 14 years in the Texas legislature. Um, also worked as an executive um, at the American Heart Association for a little while. And for the last uh, probably 18 years, I've been looking at performance measurement and management, which is relevant to our topic today. Excellent. All right. Well, it's definitely relevant to improving general outcomes in government, as we're titled for this episode, uh, specifically in Texas. But leading up to this podcast, I chatted with both of our guests about maybe a common policy area that they might have some shared expertise that we could dive a little bit into instead of giving you a lot of general platitudes about increasing accountability or more resources needed. We're going to dive into some... Um, specifics from the most recent Texas legislature earlier in the year. And we have not met to have a recording since the legislature wrapped up. So we'll talk a little bit maybe about the legislature and how this was, I think, uh, as the reviews I read of it, much more quiet and much more, um, what, collegial, I guess, than some Business of the like? Business-like and professional. Those were the terms. Productive. Productive. <laughs> um, and in general, one of the things that this legislature was focused on was updating school financing in the state of Texas. And this is referred to as Texas House Bill 3, um, which dominated a lot of the discussion and time in the past legislature. And interestingly, I found out today, maybe I should have done this before, but the House Bill passed unanimously. So it had broad bipartisan support from both Republicans mm -hmm. and Democrats, which in 2019, kudos to the legislature for finding something to agree on. But maybe um, one of you might be willing to give us just a little bit of a broad overview on what House Bill 3 is and why it's something worth talking about today. Sure. So um, House Bill 3 was a revamp to the funding formula for the state of Texas. Texas, like lots of other states, provides revenue to school districts based on the number of students that they have in enrollment and the demographic characteristics of those kids some uh, adjustments for uh, economies of scale or lack thereof in rural Texas. Some te rural Texas school districts are located uh, in very demographically sparse locations where you can you know, drive for 100 miles and wrap up and find about five fifth graders. So you're, you're stuck with some, some really uh, high cost of operation due to factors completely outside of school district control. It's like a big chunk of like West Texas. Yeah, I mean, it's just basically, it's a very, it's a different challenge. 
Um, Portland, Texas has like a million school districts. There are more than a thousand school yeah, districts which in is Texas. Like the median district is in the ballpark a thousand kids range. Mm -hmm. So most of the districts are smaller. But on the other hand, we have two school districts with more than 100,000 students in them, and that'd be Dallas ISD and Houston ISD. So the funding formula is trying to finance all of these guys through a, a structure that as uh, lovingly referred to as Robin Hood, which is a redistribution uh, of revenues from some parts of the state to other parts of the state. Um, so does that mean there's a statewide property tax? A statewide property tax is unconstitutional in the state of Texas. Thank you for, so thank the, you for clarifying that issue. So what, what we have is a, um, a funding structure that redistributes nonetheless but it does throw so through a, a series of arguably political fig leaves by which the districts provide money to the state and the state provides money to other districts so uh, the funding formula is has a number of attractive features to it in the state of texas and and house bill three uh, made some of them more attractive one of the the basic things that I think made it so popular in, in kind of widespread is it really increased the state share of education funding in Texas. It was a substantial increase in the basic allotment for student funding and, so and that, that was important. So in when the five billion was cut in what the 2011 session? There was a cut in the 2011 session and it wasn't so much a huge cut in the actual level of spending so much as it was there had been projections of growth that were removed. But there was definitely a, a uh, recession-induced yes. uh, substantial decrease in the funding that the state provided to the uh, public school system. Uh, that led to litigation, that led to judicial rulings, uh, that led um, me to work with the state in as part of that, so I'm not a, an unbiased player in this. But basically, the uh, Texas Supreme Court ruled that the funding formula, while far from perfect, satisfied the constitutional requirements, and that therefore the state did not require the legislature to make changes. And so it's really quite kind of impressive that despite the fact that there was no judicial stick whacking the legislators, they still came up with a substantial reform to the funding formula. They increased the basic per pupil spending, which really increased the state's share of funding. They changed the way that funding was provided to um, economically disadvantaged children. So that would be largely children who receive free and reduced price lunch, but it's also students that are um, in foster homes or otherwise perceived as uh, disadvantaged. And the state created some new structures that we hadn't had in the state before to provide additional funding to school districts based not only on the demographics of the kids, but also on some of the poverty metrics for the census block in which the school is located. And that was a new component of the funding formula. The intent was to try and get to something that would be more equitable, uh, provide additional flow of, of resources to economically disadvantaged kids. There's a large literature that suggests that 
kids who come to the classroom without the advantages in their home do need more resources. So it's appropriate that the state would provide those additional resources. Is the revenue is the revenue source for this extra mm -hmm. uh, state funding come from this reallocation of property taxes, or is it from an, uh, an independent source? Because the legislature put a lot of additional money into the system, it's generally coming from general revenue of the state. Okay. And that would be largely sales tax, a little bit of lottery money, a little bit of severance tax money, um, but we are largely a sales tax financed uh, state. What about so, public charter schools? Public charter schools are um, an independent uh, educational agency, in many ways like organized like a school district, but they don't have a, a taxing authority. They're funded fully through either formula funding uh, or through donations. Donations are a much bigger source of revenue for uh, charter schools than they are for traditional public schools. But most of their revenue either comes from state funding formula or federal transfers from like Title I funding formula for, from the feds. What's Title um, I funding? Title I funding is compensatory education funding for uh, low-income kids. Which goes to the state, and that flows not only to the charter schools but also to the s traditional school districts in the state. So basically, with the charter schools, this revamp also represented a substantial increase in funding per pupil available to charter schools. And the, the more students you can attract to your charter school, the more revenue you receive. The more students who live in your attendance area who choose to go to charter schools, the less revenue the district receives. So there is an incentive to the districts to provide uh, programming or um, services to kids to, to keep them rather than having them leave for the charter schools. There's decent literature out there suggesting that that, that threat of uh, departure does provide incentives for school districts to use their resources more carefully or efficiently. Um, there's been a lot of work done that suggests that the more options and choices that parents have in a community, options in terms of other public school districts or other private, or private schools or charter schools, in some sense it doesn't really matter what kinds of options there are, just the fact that there are options tend to result in less unexplained spending less spending by the district that doesn't seem to translate into any outcomes for kids that we can measure. So it, it seems to be an efficiency enhancing kind of thing. So the competition seems to be maybe good in that area. Competition seems to have positive outcomes uh, for systems. Okay. Now it, it can cause some, some planning challenges for school districts. Yeah, I was just mm. thinking but it, yeah. for, the, for the system as a whole, the threat of exit does tend to provide a certain amount of market-like mm -hmm. discipline. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's a, it's a desirable thing. And, and so uh, there, there's lots and lots of bells and whistles in House Bill 3 and lots of special things that were done. But one of the things that the legislature introduced that was really I can't be confident it's unique, but it's pretty close to unique, is the requirement for efficiency audits in the school districts. From here on out, if a school district wants to raise its tax rate or a charter school wants to change its charter and, for example, expand into a different, into serving a different population in a different location, 
they have to pay for and arrange for an efficiency audit to basically say, are they getting their money's worth? And that the results of that audit have to be provided to the voters before the voters decide on whether or not to raise tax rates. How about for charter schools, they don't have to go to the voters. So what do these efficiency reports do for them? For them, the efficiency reports are required and the state makes a determination as to whether or not, if they want an expansion of their charter, they want to be able to serve a different population, they want to be able to open a new school in a location that they weren't authorized to do so before. They have to prove to the state, who is their chartering organization, that they are using the money they've already received well. So yeah, but, there are some interesting examples of efficiency audits that school districts do. Mm -hmm. Detroit and did a, and they had a big deficit, no surprise. Mm -hmm. And they had a, a school system performance audit, which includes efficiency mm -hmm. as well as effectiveness. Um, and they report that they identified $53 million in possible savings, which is interesting. Which is a large number. It's a big number. <laughs> the so. state of Kansas, um, they had a similar study and the recommendations were generating, projected to generate more than $2 billion over five years. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about this audit uh, requirement is good information. My understanding is that school districts do not have to implement any of the recommendations that flow from the audits. Is that your understanding? That's my I, the, I didn't the, the, see anything in the bill. It's like, wait, and then what? They have to do an audit. They have to publicize an audit. Yep. So this is largely about taxpayer information, mm -hmm. about using the moral suasion of the voters to basically provide an incentive for them to use the money wisely. If you have an audit, the audit says, wow, you're really wasting your resources over here, mm -hmm. and I want to go and ask you to raise taxes on yourself, okay. I would anticipate that you would say uh, no. And I think that the, the districts are likely to feel some political heat to at least explain why it is that their their funding's out of that their spending's out of whack. So this is a, a percentage increase, right? There's if if you want to raise your, your your school tax by what is it over five percent? Well, no, no. It's, if if you want any change in your tax rate. Now, right. You can get it if your tax base expands. If your tax base expands, you get more money. Right. right. Not always under the funding formula because of the Robin Hood business. Right. But yeah, um, the the idea is if you want to raise your tax rate at all, then you have to have. If you an want to raise your tax audit. rate one half of one percent, you still okay. have to have an audit. This is for anybody who is. Let me get the language here right. That not if you're um, in a disaster. Before seeking yeah. voter approval to adopt the tax rate for the maintenance and operation of the district, at an election held for this purpose. So if you have, if you're raising so the rates, any rate, any rate, any rate increase, any rate increase, you're going to have to inform the voters of how well you done, which is not necessarily a bad thing because, quite frankly, there's a lot of districts out there that are not pinching their pennies. Well, I'd like to know who's doing these 
the audit reports. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, well, the, the way the bill is written, mm -hmm. the auditor that's already auditing the school district can do this audit. So this isn't the state auditor. This is a no, no, no. Just uh -uh. A, an, the person who audits the school board's books. Probably a private company. Right. Mm -hmm. Is going to come in and do a larger mm -hmm. audit of their spending. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and it's going to be done fast. It's got to be done in three months. But but this yeah. is a spending audit. It's not an educational outcomes audit. Well, if it's mm -hmm. good, if you're going to call it efficiency, it can't be exclusively a spending audit. Mm -hmm. And uh, the legislative budget board is currently charged with developing the rules and regs for what these audits have to look like. Mm -hmm. They haven't gotten so, there yet. No, they, they've been they've been calling around because they, they I've talked to them and I know of a couple other groups that have talked to them good. about what are the necessary data that need to be collected, How? Do, what do we have to focus in on here, what are some of the indicators of inefficiency, mm -hmm. and, you know, doesn't Texas require GASB compliance? Am I right about that? I thought Texas did. Now you're going to have to explain oh, to us what GASB compliance is. The Government Accounting Standards Board, uh, and they put out the not rules, the great Gatsby. not the Great Gatsby. Okay. Happily, yeah. <laughs> a great guess. Um, it is a national board that sets the standards for audits. And Texas, and I want to say there's only one other state that has said, you know, the Governmental Accounting Standards Board has some good stuff. It's mm -hmm. the way to go. So hopefully the LBB will be able to build on that. Well, Texas is definitely one of the few states that has really been big on financial transparency. Mm -hmm. It's one of the few mm -hmm. states that has published all the spending of every K-12 district in the state on yes. the fund, function, and object level. So you can see you this was what... That. Didn't you work on that? Oh, I... And that was way too long ago, I forget. <laughs> I deny. Uh, no, the financial data predates me. Um, but the idea is that, you know, you could go into the books of any school district you care about. It's up there on TEA's website mm -hmm. uh, and see what they spent on benefits for teachers in this particular school during this particular academic year. And that kind of, and to a certain extent, there's an obscurity in just inundating people with all this information. Mm -hmm. Lots of folks aren't in a position to be able to tease out um, insights from those data, but I've been using them for decades, and uh, they're, they're really quite useful. They're not available in most other states, uh, definitely not in time series kind of form, and we, we've used them to develop, uh, through the previous controller of the state of Texas, a, a website that basically looks at how spending in the district stacks up mm -hmm. to performance in the district, and kind of a academic growth kinds of standards. What, what's that website? That website? What? what thank you, Brass. <laughs> the website is, is txsmartschools.org. It was a um, project now of the Bush School in uh, providing information that allows you to make comparisons across campuses or comparisons across school districts. Uh, you, you name the school, you can drill down, you can see the data, you can see how it performs relative to similarly situated schools with similar kinds of kids. You, you see kind of striking things like if, if you look at San Antonio ISD, 
uh, Isleta and Brownsville, which are all school districts in the state of Texas. They're ballpark comparable size. They're large districts by Texas standards. They serve uh, student populations that are economically disadvantaged and uh, English language, heavily English language learners. And they spend about the same. But Brownsville and Isleta are at the 90th percentile in, student, in terms of student academic growth for the state of Texas. And San Antonio's below 20th percentile. So all you have to do is, is kind of go, San Antonio, you're not going to get your tax rate increase for the next decade because they've got some serious work to do there. And I think that these efficiency audits, although, you know, when I rule the world, they'll be somewhat different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The efficiency audits are going to focus some attention on a location that needs it. I hope that the LBB mm -hmm. includes in this some framework that most of us can use to say, okay, if I'm comparing those three school districts, mm -hmm. let me look at these five or six areas and then see what the numbers are across those three for their mm -hmm. expenditures. Right. Because that's just the beginning of it. Then it's like, well, wait a minute. What's Brownsville doing? Right. You know, and, and somebody needs somebody from San Antonio ISD needs to go talk to Brownsville uh -huh. and Sleta and say, excuse me, how is it that I'm at below 20th percentile mm -hmm. and y'all are above 90th percentile? Mm -hmm. There's it, something you're doing. You've got the secret sauce. Yes, similar populations. Is. Very similar populations, yep. similar size, similar spending. Big difference in performance, and that's important. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's also... I think there are a number of the things that LBB needs to take into consideration when they're starting to provide guidance for these efficiency audits. Okay, LBB? Legislative Budget Board. The Legislative Budget Board is the, the state agency charged with coming up with the uh, with implementation uh, of this piece yeah. of house. I'll let an acronym go once, but if I hear it the second time, <laughs> i got to ask. It's, it's like, like a must be Yes. got to ask what it is. Cool. So, but, but one of the things that I really, I hope and I, I believe that they will take into consideration is this idea that you, you can't just compare apples to oranges. In schools, you can't compare the spending of a big district with economies of scale like Houston or Isleta to a school district with a po student population of 300 kids. I mean, they're just very major differences in how they can allocate it. You have to, you have to have some contextualization according to school size. Yeah, now we're pushing LBB, Legislative yeah. Budget Board, beyond I heard it the structuring first time. Yeah. <laughs> beyond the, the audits themselves, which right. would be great if, if they would say, oh, here's some suggestions for how mm -hmm. to use yeah. these data. Did, did HB3 mandate a, a salary increase for teachers? HB3 mandated that for any increase in funding to the district, 25% of it has to go into salary increases for current personnel. Okay. So At one they, point that was in there, but then it got taken out. No, the, no, 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 that's the, still there. Like but the raise the, the, for everybody. Yeah, raise for everybody. Yeah, well, but this is a raise for everybody because they have Only to Only if take, you get more more revenue. And there's a huge revenue increase in HB3. Oh, okay. okay. So, and it has so to go So it's not a tax to, rate. It's not if you if you raise the tax rate 25% of it has to go to, to salaries. It, it's if you get more revenue from the state 25% no, of it. If you get, 
my read is if you get more revenue kind of period, it has to go in, 25% of any revenue increase has to go into salary increases for current Stay. personnel. That sounds low to me, given the fact that in schools, I would assume, and you tell me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong, that a huge percentage of your budget is going to be salaries, because schools are very labor intensive. Yeah, but a lot of this is going to be, the reason why your revenue goes up is you've got more kids. Yeah. You got more kids. You need to have well. That's higher. More that's higher in the new people, which is a different. Which pot is a of different money. part of money. Yeah. So this is and just supplies. That, that this is tying the school district's hands, so that if they get any additional revenue, they have to spend it on payroll, and they have to spend it on raises for their current staff, which most of the school districts in the state were not amused by. Because th this, is, this is essentially to say, we, the legislature of the state of Texas, knows the best, one best way to teach, and we're going to tell you how it's done. Yeah. And I don't really know that the salaries for individuals was necessarily going to be the most efficient use of additional resources. Oh, yeah. Maybe that what they needed was more teacher aides. Maybe well, what the, they le needed the legislature, was in its wisdom, is mm -hmm. is very big on local control, except when it's not. Yes, yes, it's exactly. It, you know, your uh, point about the the amount of money and worry. Tell me if this is true in Texas. My understanding, in terms of salaries and support and tools and all of that stuff, tends to be sixty one percent. Does that sound about um, right? Salaries and benefits and all that rot tends to be closer to 79%. Okay. okay. So it's, it's a hugely labor-intensive yeah. industry. And, um, and my concern is that I believe that a number of these school districts are well-managed. And we're going to tie their hands and say that rather than using these resources to hire uh, additional counselors right. to provide services, they have to go into salary. When there's, it's not always the case that the salaries are the problem right. for these districts. That's right. And there are well-managed districts. So is the basic takeaway then that updates have been made to the funding formula that increase overall amounts in general, like the, mm -hmm. the base rates are actually higher. There's this 20% that needs to go towards current faculty and staff. 25 25%. And there's one other piece that now I'm blanking on. Oh, the efficiency audits. Uh-huh. Are there, is there any other big, I know this, this bill was large and included lots of things, but is there any other parts about the bill that we should mention before we wrap up this part? Um, well, one of the things that, that had used to be part of the funding formula was a recognition that hiring costs are higher in cities than they are in rural areas. And the cost of living is higher in Houston than it is in, in College Station. So you, you have to spend more to hire in Houston uh -huh. to get the same kind of person than in College Station. And the, the old funding formula had a, an adjustment in it for those regional differences in labor costs that I think are really important. And the new funding formula wiped that, but it did replace it with a, a charge to the Texas Education Agency to do an analysis 
that could be used to update that element of the funding formula, but they wiped it in the first place, which, okay. mean, which is disadvantaging to urban Texas relative to rural Texas. Because it used to be there was a recognition in the formula, it was about an 18% differential from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. But that was a big benefit to urban school districts. What we have now is a situation where legislatively we're going, we're, we are boxed into the corner that says, you know, a dollar of payroll is going to get me just as much um, staff, just as high, the same yeah. caliber of staff in one location as another. Mm -hmm. And no other f employer in the state can operate like that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this is really helpful. This is uh, a good description of House Bill 3, I think. Uh, I hope well, there are plenty of little bits that we left out. It's got a new dyslexia adjustment. It's got changes in special ed. It's got perhaps all another, sorts perhaps, of stuff. Perhaps in another <laughs> podcast we can go into those fascinating in two details. Years. Yes. <laughs> or if they come up in the general panel discussion, we should carry on and take a brief break. And uh, thanks so much. Uh, Professors Lori Taylor and Deborah Kerr for being here with us, and we're going to shift to a broader panel discussion and uh, tackle some things we missed this summer. Thanks so much. Cool. Hi, everyone. My name is Faith, and I am Dr. Bullock's graduate assistant for this academic year, which means I am also his podcast producer. As he mentioned at the beginning of this recording, we have multiple social media handles that we hope for you to follow. Our Facebook fan page is Bush School Uncorked, Twitter is at Bush Uncorked, Instagram is at Bush School Uncorked, and our email is bushschooluncorked at gmail.com. As we move on to our other shows, we hope that you guys send us any questions you may have regarding certain topics that you want answered by our guests. This can be done by messaging us on any of our social media platforms, and it's actually highly encouraged that you do so. That said, thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. Now back to the live recording. All right, welcome back. We will now begin our panel session, and I think Greg has a ooh, idea ooh. how to get us started off. Ooh, ooh, I've got a question. <laughs> you don't even have to raise your hand. How can, how can anything pass a legislature anywhere unanimously? That's, that, that crazy is, talk. That, that is crazy talk. That is, that is absolutely ridiculous, particularly in Texas, where, you know, we have a relatively severe partisan divide. I mean, Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke are two different people. And there are people to the right of Ted Cruz and people to the left of Beto O'Rourke in the Texas legislature. How could they all vote for this bill? Is it just that we've got more money and it's easy to spend more money? It was pretty bad before. I'm sure our legislators were hearing about this. In other words, the school system, the, the situation in the schools was yeah. bad. Yeah. I think there was a lot of political will to do something. So the previous that's, legislature, that's a, that's the legislature they had tried. Well, the, the previous legislature they had tried and gotten nowhere. So there were there are a number of bills that got shot down. So this one so came through. They, 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 these previous bills got shut down. Why did they try to do different things that this bill did? Uh, yeah, they were they were different from this bill. And, okay. and I think one of the things that is new to this bill is the efficiency audits. And quite frankly, I think that those brought certain constituencies to the table that wouldn't have been brought there because of a concern that you know if we spend if we increase the amount of revenue that these districts are going to receive, they're just going to piff it away on something 
uh, inappropriate. If it away. Yes. And okay. now. I just want to make sure that that's <laughs> With an F. With an F. If it away. That's the old German. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so, so I'll, I'll tell you that that doesn't convince me, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, because there, there's, th that seems like a technical change to me that might bring some legislators along. But when you get a unanimous vote, presumably in, in the House, was it unanimous in the Senate? Yeah, it was unanimous in the Senate as well. Yeah. Lord help us. I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of want to say that if, if Dan Patrick and the most left-leaning person uh, elected from Austin agree on something, there's got to be something wrong with it. <laughs> so Kirk Watson. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm still... I'm give me another explanation about why this was passed unanimously. I, 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 I buy public... Public, well, and, up, public and political, upsurge and political outcomes. And tell me about that. Um, you know, to not have anything. Last session was... Well, part, we almost had the Hyperpartisan. And some of the legislation that was introduced got a lot of bad press for people. Are you talking about the bathroom bill? Uh, well, perhaps. Okay. The bathroom bill was a good example yeah. of that. Um, and so I'm guessing there was some desire to look like we can do something. Well, and two, it's coupled with increase, uh, increases in spending and education and decreases in some, prop and some taxes as well, right? I think it was passed together with tax cuts and increases in spending. Is that right? Mm, that's a Texas Tribune. Not confident. Okay, okay. Right. I, I don't know that you're, you're wrong. It's just. Um, I think it was passed with some tax cuts as well. But there's, but the state can't mandate a property tax cut because property taxes are determined at the local level. Yeah. But what what you do is, what the state has done in the past is they provide a substantial increase in state funds to the districts, conditional on some sort of compression in the local districts right. Right. in the local tax rate. Right. To be. To be continued. I mean, we've got to see what happens. So the Tribune reported it as including $6.5 billion to improve public education and paid teachers, plus $5.1 billion to lower school district taxes. And the lowering of school district taxes was this idea that you're going to replace local revenue with, with state, state revenue. revenue. What if you don't? Then, then you you got to send most of it to Austin to be Robin Hooded and redistributed? Well, the, the way that the, 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 Texas has a style of funding formula that's called a foundation formula. And what that basically means is the state promises a certain level of funding for basic education. And you, you raise your revenues locally, if you can't hit that level, the state will top up the tank and provide you with additional resources to hit that level. One of the important features of a foundation formula is that as your local tax base grows, the only real beneficiary of that is the state yeah. because it just reduces the state's obligation, the amount of money the state has to provide to top up the tank. Right. So Texas has a history of these kind of ratchets in the funding formula where they'll set a, a dollar amount and then the, they won't 
touch it for a few years while appreciation in local property values shifts the burden increasingly away from the state onto the districts and then an adjustment gets made and so I, I think that there is a, an element of that here as well. Is per pupil spending basically consistent across the state or is per, pu per pupil spending radically different in a relatively rich town like College Station and a less well-off town? The funding formula is designed to make the spending relatively the same for districts that have the same size, the same kids, and the same chosen tax rate. So um, there are differences across the state in spending, and some of them are desirable. I mean, it, it's appropriate that you would have higher average spending per pupil in a really small district right. than in a really you, large district. Because you don't get and economies of scale. the state has this huge differential in the access to economies of scale. With most of the districts below 1,000 kids, you have most of the districts are receiving funding supplements for their lack of economies of scale. And then most of the kids are in big districts that are able to fully exploit economies of scale and in some cases might be you know, too big to manage successfully. Are school districts, is there any history of them like merging for economy of scale purposes or are people pretty proud of that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes, there have been, there have been the occasional. <laughs> it's about the football team, man. It's the same in Georgia with it the counties. It's about the football team. Now we're getting down to it. Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking about important stuff. <laughs> High school football. There, there just haven't been that many consolidations over the last, say, 20, 25 years. i got to tell you, that is uh, not just a, a Texas thing. I moved down here from Vermont, uh -huh. a very small state, which has way more school districts than it should. Yeah. And when you try to merge them, people riot. They, mm -hmm. vote, they vote their representatives out of office, and they go and yep. they go after the governor, and it, it would be, you talk about an efficiency audit, you know, they need that because they need fewer school districts, but people just go nuts. And, yeah, and um, uh, the research team that I'm on uh, was asked by the, the Texas Education Agency to look at the gains of consolidation uh, a few years back, and we looked at it repeatedly over time. And because of the focus of the, the task given us to, by, by TEA, we were really focusing on consolidation in urban areas. Right. And what right. Consolidation we found, doesn't make sense in those disparate western yeah, areas yeah, where right. you just don't have that many people. Right. But what we found was most urban area districts in Texas are already big enough mm -hmm. to fully exploit economies of scale. And most of the cost savings from consolidation would be from closing the schools and consolidating the schools. Right. It's not the, the administrative overhead and duplication of principal salaries that's, or superintendent salaries that's the issue. It's that two districts that are small will have schools that are small, potentially so small that your class sizes are more like tutoring sessions than they are like, like teaching. Right. And so to really reap the benefits of consolidation, you have to close schools, yeah, not just merge districts. Yeah. Right. And closing yeah. schools is one of the bloodiest it's, things that, you ever do. That sends people finance. to the streets. Yes, I mean, and, and that's happening right now. 
well, people have, are, are invested yes. in the school that my mother attended, Absolutely. and you can't close our neighborhood school even though oh, it's yeah. it's under enrolled at this point. It was right. built for and there's 400, another school there's four miles yeah, down the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah they so. just started that discussion in Austin, and I expect it to be uh, rambunctious. <laughs> I mean, one of the obvious and extremely difficult strategies to try and improve the efficiency of school districts in Texas would be to consolidate some of the schools within some of the bigger districts. But that tends to mean closing schools in neighborhoods that are losing population. Neighborhoods that are losing population are frequently minority neighborhoods, so now we're talking about reaping efficiency gains while um, removing the anchor of a neighborhood. And people don't take to that well. Now Austin's interesting in the way they're packaging it. Right. They are saying we have to close schools. Under We have to close schools. The discussion is more around what are we going to do with these buildings? Will mm -hmm. it be a community center? So they're community discussions about what to do with the buildings more than which I mean, we, there are like 12 or 13 schools that are under be closed. And, and what that does offer is a way to keep that community uh, held together mm -hmm. without having it be in the school system's yeah. obligations and budget. They're all, Austin is also been reasonably successful with a few magnet yeah. school ideas to try and revitalize an under-enrolled high school by turning it into a magnet uh, for um, technology, for Arts example. Arts or something. Yeah. 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 One of the discussions is making the buildings into affordable housing for teachers. Oh. Mm -hmm. That would be hard to say no to. Huh. Mm -hmm. Depends, right. I guess, on what kind of experience you had in that classroom that's being converted <laughs> into a apartment. Yeah, okay. there, there might okay. be PTSD. You there think there's be. some karma in there? Might yeah. be. There might be. Yeah. All right, so we're entering maybe our last 10 minutes. Uh, I wanted to save some time for any questions from the audience. So I see at least one hand in the back. Yes, sir. The hundreds of people who have come to this, <laughs> Way to this taping. Lori, yes. uh, on the 25% on the, uh, uh -huh. salary amenity, uh, is that a cap or a floor? It's a floor, isn't it? It's so a floor, yeah. The it's school a district so. could decide to spend more on, on salaries than they wanted to, so it isn't completely state preemption, right? It's just a minimum. So, so the so the question is that uh, we're talk we talked about how twenty five percent of the extra money under House Bill three has to go to s existing staff salaries. Uh, the question was is is that a floor or a ceiling? Locals can pay more. Locals have the option of paying more. Okay, but it is a um, it is a it clearly it is a floor. You have to go at least this far with, with the revenue. It doesn't say that it has to be evenly distributed right. amongst its school personnel. It doesn't have to be an across-the-board increase for teachers. Doesn't ha they're, they're really the only group that gets singled out is administrators who don't 
seem to have the same kind of political clout in, in Austin, so they're, well, they're not guaranteed. That they're not guaranteed the same kind of sharing in the revenue increases. So, do you have any sense that talking about the politics of it, that there was concern about teachers, what teachers might do? Uh, in, the, in light of what happened in West Virginia and Arizona. Because um, I heard a lot of people saying they didn't want to see the same thing happen in Texas. In light of the, the teacher strikes that, that we right. saw in West Virginia and Arizona, was that part of the politics of, of increasing the, the funding and, and putting this floor on, on uh, how much of that extra revenue you have to use to increase existing staff salaries? Well, I, I think it, it had to have been part of the calculus uh, in looking at that. Texas is a right-to-work state. There are no uh, teachers don't have unions in the traditional sense of the word. They do have they have political action committees. Yes, and it, arguably it, it's more efficient on their part to negotiate with 31 state senators than with more than a thousand school districts in a pattern bargaining kind of setting. So it, it's. And it's doubtless that there was some uh, concern that the the issues that drove the teachers to strike in West Virginia and California could also come home to Texas. But but the thing of it is, it, when this legislature directed additional revenue to the districts, the districts always had the option of putting it into salary. Uh, but this is a prescription as to the extent to which it has to go into salary. And that is a, a bit of a, goal, of a, a, a constraint on um, how resources are used in these districts. If we want them to behave efficiently, we need to give them incentives to behave efficiently. We need to monitor them, but we need not, need not to be telling them how to do their jobs. So what happens if the state gives you this extra money, you're a school district, and all you care about is uh, lowering your tax rate? Uh, does the state say, hey, we're not going to give you money just to lower your tax rate. You've got to use this money for, we know you got to use 25% of it for, for salary. But what if the if district says, we're going to use the other 75% of it to lower our tax rate, instead of investing in the educational outcomes? Well, I think one of the intended goals was to use some of it to lower the tax rate. Um, so, I mean, a Good big luck. part of this is, about, to those is about rebalancing. It's about rebalancing the state's contribution to education in the state instead of the local districts. And, to, and that is essentially to say a shift of the burden for school finance off of local property taxes onto general sales taxes. So, in, in other words, shifting the revenue burden off rich people who pay property taxes on the houses they own and shifting that burden onto poor people who pay the state sales tax for the stuff they buy. Not quite, because renters have a, a portion of the property tax burden is built into the rent. Your landlord passes okay, well that's, that through. That's, more peop that's poor but, people too. So, so they, they benefit from the, the property tax reduction in if that but, allows but the landlord to my, pass through that But reduction. my guess is that A, landlords won't do that, and B, that the, your, your average property tax payer, a homeowner, has a higher income than your average renter. Well, Greg, we don't want to tax the yachts. 
The yachts. The yachts. You know, all the yachts lined up in Lake Bryan here. But but in general, property taxes are more progressive and sales taxes are more regressive on average. On average, yeah. And and there are a lot of land taxes are are particularly efficient form of taxation. Now we're getting to why this was passed unanimously. Is that is that rich people will pay less and poor people will pay more. And school spending will go up and everybody thinks that's good. Everybody thinks that's good, including me. (laughs) But I do think a rich person. A rich person, comparatively. Although some days I don't feel that I way. Know. <laughs> yep. But wouldn't wouldn't it be more equitable to actually put more of the education expenses on the property tax and less on the sales tax? You know, that's uh, the whole issue of democratic values. That's what we're talking about. You know, transparency in the audits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Equitable distribution, the discussion, right? right? Um, so my property tax are going to go down, mm-hmm. and Justin, who's poor compared to me, his uh-huh. sales tax is going up. Yeah. For the record, I am poor compared to It's important to remember <laughs> that the legislature has uh, exempted a number of forms of purchasing from the sales tax food and medicine and the like. Now, that means they've exempted Ross Perot's filet mignon just the same as, as Justin's hamburger. But um, that there has been Is Ross Perot still alive? No, junior, yes he is. Junior, it's junior, Ross Perot Jr.'s <laughs> filet mignon. Okay. So, but the, the, so there have been some attempts to address the equity issue. There's also a question about, um, elderly individuals, particularly those on fixed incomes, and their ability to pay uh, substantial increases in property taxes. Even though they have an asset, they don't want to liquidate that asset. They're living in it at the time. Right. So equity is much more complex than just property taxes versus sales tax. One is good and one is bad. Uh, And I think it's really important to also think about how the spending is being distributed in the formula which uh, contributes to the equity question, which makes the equity tax question particularly complex. I don't, I don't disagree with anything you said about mm-hmm. the exceptions to the notion that people who pay property taxes are rich and much richer than people who pay sales taxes. Everybody pays sales taxes. But as a percentage of my income, what I pay in sales tax is much less as a percentage than what the poor guy on my left, Professor Bullock pays in sales tax. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to. I want to drive Granny and Pop up out of their house because property taxes are going up. But it does seem to me that grosso mundo, property taxes tax the rich, and sales taxes take a, a larger chunk of the income of middle and lower income folks than they do for poor people. So the, the other issue is which level of government is collecting the tax and how it's spent to Lori's point. So mm-hmm. the property tax, the problem with the prop putting more, uh, part of the problem with putting more reliance on the property tax is it's usually collected at the local level and then spent in that local community. 
And so then the value of the, the houses is then also highly correlated with the amount of money that there is to spend. Right. But then you, you have Robin Hood kick in, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of that money then goes to the poor districts, right? That's my, mm-hmm. that's, that's yeah. the funding formula, right? Mm-hmm. All right, any final questions from the Governance crowd? Governance is complicated. That's what I hear. Yeah. You know what? If you really want to understand it, you should come and get a master's degree at the Bush in School. public service and administration yeah. at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas at A&M. Texas A&M University. And it also can train you in what, Greg? Not only public service administration, but well, you want you want complex. <laughs> oh man! Oh, we'll start. We'll start talking about international affairs. Yeah. Which you can also get a master's in at the Bush School. I like that. I would expect. I was. I was hoping you were going to plug your own department. I was there a little worried there for a minute. Okay, so thank you for joining us for the first episode back. And just as a reminder, the next episode will be uh, September twenty fourth. We will be recording live right here again at. Um, not Bush School Uncorked, but no. Downtown Uncorked. It's our good and, friends at Downtown Uncorked yeah. in historic Downtown Bryant. And we'll be here at uh, 6 p.m. So if you're available, come Grand join us. Grand strategy. And we'll be talking Grand about... strategy. <laughs> not, not limited strategy. We're talking... We're, we're talking... Grand strategy. We're going to try to get John Bolton as special guest. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks so much to our guests for being with us and knocking out, uh, starting off the season with us. So thanks so much for your time. Gladly.